0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today.
1: Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam, can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
2: 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com.
0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter.
2: And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today I'm speaking to Nathan Murnack, who is not only one of the best whitetail hunters I know, but also the COO of Base Camp Leasing. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You've probably figured out that this is not the voice of Mark Kenyon. Mark was actually supposed to record an episode this week, but he got a lead on a vintage Jurassic Park Triceratops toy, and he is on a mission to buy it to complete his collection. Now, I know you might think this is a joke, but it's actually not. Mark had an unfortunate incident in third grade where he didn't get that toy for Christmas and it has haunted him ever since. Feel free to ask him about it. This is all true. So anyway, hopefully he'll get that squared away so he can come back and do his job. But for now you have me. So, all right, we've listened to Andy May, Mike Stroff and Zach Ferenbaugh the last three weeks talk about big bucks and how we often give them too much credit. Today, I'm wrapping up this Rabbits with Antlers month with a guy named Nathan Murnack, who is an absolute whitetail killer. Murnack started out as a police officer before joining Cabela's for a decade, and now he works as the COO of Basecamp Leasing, which is a service that facilitates leasing opportunities for whitetails across the country, but also handles real estate for folks who are looking to buy their own deer ground. This is a really interesting perspective we don't often hear from on this podcast, and I'm telling you, not only does Nathan offer up plenty of good information on how to get yourself onto some solid deer ground, but also how to hunt it correctly, whether you're really on primo dirt or on public land. I had a blast talking to him, and I think you're going to love what he has to say. Nate, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing real good, Tony. Real good. It is a, uh, a pleasure to get to speak with you, man. We haven't, we haven't uh, connected in a while. I miss you, buddy
3: i miss you too man we had some good times
2: didn't we we did we uh we chased some turkeys down there in missouri a few years ago and uh we've talked a lot about deer and i actually i met you uh working on a book for tom miranda a million years ago and we just hit it off and i, I just remember thinking you know this is a, this is a dude that understands whitetails. i could talking to you and then getting to, getting to spend some time with you on your property in Missouri there, just seeing how you had it set up and hearing your stories about hunting there for yourself and with your daughters, it was like this guy, he just gets it. Like you, there's, there's certain people you meet who you can just tell, understand whitetails on a really deep level. And I I put you in that category, man.
3: Oh, I, that's, that's a humbling, humbling statement to hear. I can tell you, especially coming from you, Tony, I really appreciate that.
2: Uh, so I wanted to talk to you and wrap up this Rabbits with Antlers month because uh, you you come at this from a, a different perspective. You know we had Andy and Zach on talking public, and then we had uh, Mike Straff on talking about his perspective as an outfitter. But you're a guy who started out at Cabela's and now you work for Basecamp Leasing as a COO there, and you you kind of work in this space of buying hunting land and leasing hunting land and. Man, I, I got to imagine that's just burning so hot right now.
3: It, it is. Absolutely has been. It hasn't uh, slowed down in at least bit in the last two years with all the distractions we've had out there. Uh, the demand's only gotten higher and and uh, property's changing a lot of hands out there on the real estate side. And on the leasing side, boy, if we've got a, a good property out there, it does not last long.
2: Yeah, I bet. I bet. I want to talk about that. But let's talk first about how did you get to the point? Because you had a really cool property there in Missouri uh, that you that you bought and you you developed and you've you've sold since then. You sold a couple of years ago, but how did you settle on that property first?
3: Uh you know, really, it was uh, the area. Uh, it actually was in Mercer County, kind of north central Missouri. Uh, I knew I wanted to be around that area. I'd be I'd been hunting just south of there actually um, about. Gosh, I don't know. It's Sullivan County, about a half hour from that property, for several years, and I, I'd always go up to Mercer County and uh, around Princeton and and have supper and all that stuff. And boy, I'd see these big bucks be pulling in all the time on these guys' trailers in the back of these trucks, and it was uh, pretty amazing to see all those successful hunters. And I thought, well, this area is pretty special, and so that specific property, I will tell you, uh, it was 80 acres uh, was the first piece I bought. And then I acquired another 30 acres a year later, uh, right alongside of it. But it was all, Tony, it came down to all about access on how that property laid out, how I thought that I could, I could get in there and, and uh, go, you know, enter and exit from the stand locations without really putting pressure on that property.
2: Yeah. So you, you kind of read the area and it, you know, this is probably being a little facetious, but it it really seems like there are places out there that are, are like Iowa 2.0 or kind of Iowa junior, you might say. And I, you know, I I'm hunting a a property in Southwestern Wisconsin along the river uh, in the bluff country there. And it's, you know, I can look and see Iowa across the river and when you drive around there in the evenings and look in bean fields, you feel like you're in Iowa. It's it's different, you know, the, the season structure and some of the pressure and stuff. But, you know, you, you can get pretty close. And that area that you were hunting in, in Missouri, you know, it's Missouri, so it's not Iowa. But, man, you're you're bumping up on the kind of hunting that you can find sometimes in Iowa.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I can tell you, one of the biggest selling points for me was before I even purchased the property, I tried to meet the neighbors and, and understand, you know, how, how they hunted, got to know them a little bit more and, and where they were at. And in what I call the, you know, your typical hunter's journey, um, you know, are there a bunch of young guys and gals out there that are shooting everything or or do they have management practices in place? All those things factored into that property, though, that 80 acres. Knowing, you know, if I put the time and effort in and, and did the right things out there from a ha- habitat perspective, that I could, you know, contribute with my neighbor in, in producing some pretty good whitetails.
2: Yeah, and that and that point, you really can't make that enough because even though you know you're talking about it from the perspective of you know being a potential land buyer, you know, with with the interest of just you know having a good place to hunt. But really, when you're talking about keeping bucks dumb or keeping bucks killable and not nocturnal and the whole thing, wh- what's going on around you is as important so as important. what you're doing.
3: So important. Yes. So yes, how, how
2: did you manage to do that, though? How did you manage to just, did you go on OnX and look up everybody around you? Or what did you do to to end up uh, meeting the neighbors?
3: I did. And actually, um, there's a, a, one of the gentlemen actually lived in Kansas City, so he was hard to, to connect with at first, but then I found where he stayed around there when he hunted the property, and, and we're, we were able to connect, and before too long, Tony, I can tell you, we were sharing um, trail cam photos, of uh, historic trail cam photos that he had, and I could tell he was feeling me out a little bit as well, just trying to understand what my approach was. Um, at that time, you know, I had two young daughters that hunted with me, and uh, for them, I, w- I just wanted them to have a great experience. It wasn't always about shooting a mature animal, uh, but he understood how, you know, I would approach that property. And, and and if they did shoot a smaller one or something like that for the first year, he was totally happy with it. But he knew I wasn't putting un you know, unneeded pressure on that property as well. Sure. Uh, and I knew the same thing from him.
2: Yeah. I mean, that that's imp- that's really important. So would you say, well, I got two things for you here. So you must be like a trust fund kid or you must have inherited a ton of money to buy that land?
3: (laughs) No. What? No, no. My goodness. I tell you what, if you knew my humble beginnings in northern Minnesota, our freezer was constantly full of wild game because that's how how we survived. Um, Absolutely not. It's hard work, you know, 12 years at Cabela's. I was a police officer even before then, but just putting in the time, saving up, it always been my lifelong dream to, own my own 80 acres. I don't know why 80 acres always stuck with me, but it did. And boy, it took me some time. You know, I went through that journey, knock and talk and getting permission, Tony, to leasing, being able to afford to lease a property and then, you know, own a piece of property. That's, that's, I think a lot of people can relate to that journey.
2: Yeah. And that, you know, you remind me because people here you know, they'll hear, oh, he bought, you know, 80 acres and another 30 acres in a sweet county in Missouri, right along the Iowa border. And people just assume, you know, that we're talking to somebody who, who came from money or, you know, there's something going on there. And this, the same thing happens to my buddy, that the land I was just mentioning, uh, that I'm hunting in Southwestern Wisconsin, he told me, because I, I met this, this friend of mine fishing tournaments when I was like 20, and we just, we hit it off. We loved to hunt. We love to fish. And so we fished together for a long time and then started hunting together. And he told me after he bought this property, he bought 90 acres there. He said when he got his first job, which he still works at, he's worked his way up at this insurance company. He said he wrote down his goals and one of them was to buy 80 acres somewhere that would be just like that he would want to hunt and that his future kids would have a place to hunt and it took him you know 20 years to get there but it was always a goal of his
3: that's correct yeah now i can relate to that for sure and and you know thank goodness i have such a supporting wife you know she we didn't have a house on the hill in sydney nebraska when we bought that property i mean If you've been to Sydney, Nebraska before, the the corporate office or the former corporate office of Cabela's, you can see all these very nice houses. And now we bought a foreclosure man down by the railroad tracks. And, uh, you know, she supported me in my effort to continue to save up to buy that property. So we went out without, you know, some things as a family. But at the end of the day, those experiences we had out there uh, as a family, you know, me and my daughters, and you can't put a price tag on that, brother.
2: Yeah. How long were you a police officer?
3: Uh, four years.
2: That was enough? That was enough yeah, time?
3: That was enough. That was in Appleton, Wisconsin. I was surrounded by great men and women at that department.
2: Yeah. And then and then how long did you work for Cabela's?
3: 12 years. 12 years. And then uh, we were bought out by my division, Cabela's Outdoor Adventures, was bought out by Worldwide Trophy Adventures. And um, I, I knew with uh, that transition with Bass Pro Shops that that town may, may lose uh, a lot of folks. And I figured it was time to move on and, and find a different career. And thank goodness, Steve Mang at Base Camp Leasing gave me a shot. And uh, it's been outstanding since 2018. I love it here. And
2: when you when you were a, a police officer in Wisconsin, weren't, weren't you hunting a bunch of public land in northern Wisconsin at that I point? I
3: was, yes. Antigo, all the way, I mean, north, in any any place where I could get away from people. That's, I, I really cut my teeth up there on, on public land. And, you know, being from Northern Minnesota, Tony, you know, there's a, a lot of, of public land up there too. I mean, we, we went out and, and hung sets on, in, you know, how many thousands and thousands of forest land they have up there and to find the right trail to sit on that night. Cause you're not hunting over agriculture or anything like that. It's your, your hardwoods or, or your typical Northern Minnesota deer hunt you know?
2: Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, really, we, we look for all these ways to, you know, bring the deer down to our level and, you know, trick them. But I always say, you know, if you, if you can go to the big woods and I, I, I'm positive this applies to a lot of Southern hunters in uh, some of the big woods down South too, if you can, you know, consistently get on deer and, you know, any level of decent buck in those situations, especially on public land, I think you can go most places, and the deer are going to seem, you know, maybe not dumb to you, but just easier to figure out.
3: Correct. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, growing up, growing up in northern Minnesota, Tony, I, I can't remember. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but you used to have to put in for a doe tag. Yep. You know, it, it was tough, tough hunting growing up, but it just fueled the passion even more.
2: Yeah, it's that those. I th- I think hunting some starvation spots like that yep. really they they kind of. They kind of like center your focus a little bit. And you go, okay, like I I would love to have a more fun, more enjoyable hunt. And when you do that stuff, it's not like it's not fun, but it's a different kind of thing to be in such a low deer density spot where you're just, you know, you're kind of really working in the moment. Like you said, you know, find a trail or find something. But it's not like it's not like you can say, I know deer are gonna bed there and they're gonna go to that field. Right. Like, or or at the very least, I know I know you're going to end up in this food source up there in that big wood situation. It's such a different deal.
3: It's totally different. You're looking for transitions and just the the most minor things that you can capitalize on the topography of the property or uh, transitions within the woods, between hardwoods and, and um, you know, your poplar trees and all that stuff up there. I mean, you're, you'll find it. You just you got to put on a little bit more time, I think.
2: Yeah. I, I really think, and I I know you've done this quite a bit. I, when I am working on big woods deer, I feel like I'm elk hunting where most of my goal is to find a concentration of animals. And when I do that, I have this little window of time (laughs) where I can work them and either I'm going to blow them out or they're going to move or I'm going to run out of time or something. But you're like the, the, you know, when you, when you're hunting, I don't know, Iowa, Illinois, something like that. You're like, I know there's a ton of deer here. If I can see trees, like I know there's deer there, but when you get up into that North woods or those big woods situations, you're like, I got to just find some deer first.
3: Right. Yes. Yep. The last experience I had of something like that, Tony, was I actually made a trip to Northeast Washington. I, I believe I was probably maybe 10 miles South of the British Columbia border up there. In the in the dead of winter in December, hunting with the bow like an idiot, you know, using my climber to get up there, and it was humbling. It's the first time I ever hunted in the mountains for a whitetail, um, but I missed that challenge. Uh, I hate to say it, you know, I I feel a little bit more spoiled now that I've hunted in Nebraska and in and, and Iowa, Wisconsin a little bit, now Indiana. Um, it all for me, Tony. It always has come down to. in order to kill a big buck you should be hunting where there's big bucks right Mm -hmm. and your opportunities in northern minnesota and let's say northeast washington for me it it was a little bit different tactic um
2: i want to talk about that but i want to back up a second how does anyone end up going from where you were to washington for a late season hunt like that
3: just the challenge tony i've i've since I was probably fifteen years old, I wanted to shoot, you know, an antlered whitetail in every state possible. And, and through research, uh, this could be wrong, but I, I think I found that there's forty-four states that hold white tails. And so my quest uh, before I kick the bucket here is I would love to shoot, you know, a whitetail buck with my bow in every state possible. And that one came up that year. I had time off and made the drive and went up there and made it happen. It wasn't the biggest buck of my life, but I can tell you through the experience, it was probably one of the most special besides the deer that my my daughters have harvested.
2: How how did you find a buck out there in Washington? What was the strategy?
3: Oh boy. Um, Honestly, Tony is probably more luck than anything, but I can tell you uh, pulling out your map and if you've got a favorite hunting map app out there, they're, they're so valuable because you can do scouting from a thousand foot view and really narrow down your focus on, uh, where you need to go at seven days to get it done. I knew there was a lot of snow on the ground. Um, so I focused on where I thought I needed to be first. And then I let the sign tell me exactly where I needed to hang with all that snow on the ground.
2: Interesting. And what, what level, or I guess I should say this, how many States do you have left to kill an antlered buck in?
3: Oh boy. I, I'm pretty sure I'm at 23 states right now. So what would that be? I mean, not, not too far. I'm 45 years old. So I've got, you know, almost 20 more to go, I guess.
2: You Well, you broke through the halfway point.
3: That's right. That's right.
2: Did, did you, do you find, cause that sounds like a, a, a sort of a young man's goal. That sounds like somebody who's, you know, like really getting after it and, and has the bug, but it also sounds like a goal that would sort of get put on the back burner when you have kids and now your, your focus has changed a little bit.
3: Yes. Yeah. And then if you buy your own property, you you tend to start thinking about all the efforts and all the work you put out there. And and that's harder to get away. Um, I think that's one of the opportunities here, actually working for a leasing company. I get to see all these great properties come in and contrary to belief I don't get first pick they always go out to our our memberships first but if I do see one on there and I, I'm a member as well and I can get it I can get it mm-hmm. so it's that's kind of helped out a little bit
2: yeah and so do you do you focus more of your efforts because you you're you're a guy who's traveled a lot for hunting opportunities do you focus more of your efforts now with the girls at the age they are by staying closer to home
3: absolutely you know you only have your kids for a short period of time in this life at home and uh, I cherish every moment with them. So when they're, when they're able and willing to go out with me, I, I do.
2: Yeah. And do you learn? Cause I, I I've been talking about this and, and writing about this quite a bit lately because something that happened to me that I just didn't see coming was, you know, I've, I've got a couple little properties in Northern Wisconsin that I bought, you know, within the last decade and I don't really like hunting them myself that much. I kind of, I really like working on them. I like working on little food plots and, you know, planting apple trees and all that stuff. I love taking my daughters there. And one thing that I just like has hit me so hard is how much I learn about hunting by having to take somebody who doesn't really know a lot about hunting.
3: Yeah, that is so, so true. Uh, One, I I think a lot of times you start talking to them about the basics, right? And I think we, uh, there's all these gadgets and gadgets and you name it out there for us hunters to the next best thing. But you start walking out there with somebody who's got fresh eyes and you're teaching them about sign and uh, why you're sitting up where you're sitting. And uh, it's just the pure basics of hunting. And and I think you learn from it, but you also remember a lot of things you probably discount nowadays.
2: Yep. Well, that's, that's one thing that hit me was, you know, when you when you have enough experience and you walk into the woods, you kind of know what you're doing. You're just like, I'm looking for this, or I'm going to sit this, or you just it's pretty easy to figure out how to like always at least feel like you're keeping yourself in the game. But when you have to take somebody who's new to this and not only like you said, explain it but, but put them in a position where it's like, I got to get a deer within 20 yards of them broadside. Oh, yeah. And, and we have to really do this together, even though, you know, you're the one kind of driving the ship. You're still like, you know, if they move or they're in a situation where they're, they're going to maybe get busted. you you like, you have to think about all that stuff. And man, it, I feel like my setups for my daughters and and that process is helping me become a better hunter in ways I just did not see coming.
3: No doubt no doubt. And there's no better moments out there than with your own kids,
2: you know? Oh yeah. It's, it's pretty badass, man. And it's, it's something, you know, there's probably a bunch of youngsters listening to this who are like, maybe can't really relate to it yet, but you know how this is, you know? So you said you're 45, I'm 42, man. There, there's just things in life with, when you start having kids and you start realizing stuff that you just, you just do not see coming, you know, at like, I was, I was thinking about this the other day, like how much I love coaching my girls in softball or basketball and some of the other teammates and just how fun it is to like see them excited and, and just like challenged. And I feel the same way when I take them hunting, like there's this like anticipation, there's a little nervousness, but it's like a learning process. And you can see just the confidence come in and how exciting it is like to watch somebody who hasn't seen a million deer off a tree stand or from a ground blind, all of a sudden a deer walks in and you can hear their breath, just like, you know, the breathing gets more excited. And it's just like, it's so freaking cool.
3: Oh, uh, and you can feed on that for the rest of the year too. You know, it's, it's, those hunts are, are probably the hunts I look forward to the most.
2: Yeah. You think, uh, I, I, and I think that's, I think that's an interesting thing for a guy like you to say, because you've hunted a lot of different stuff and spent a good portion of your life, you know, kind of chasing those, those hunting adventures out there. And to hear that is, it's interesting because I think a lot of people would look at, you know, your history and some of the, some of the different, you know, phases of your hunting career and go, that's, that's gotta be the best. Like if you're traveling all over and you're chasing that dream of killing an antlered buck in every state, or you're drawing a mountain goat tag somewhere like, I think a lot of people would look at that and go, you, you're not going to top that moment, man. Like that's the best, but it changes. There's, there's oh, it's different. Oh,
3: yes. And all of those things, compa- you know, pale in comparison to sitting there with your child and, and watching things happen the way you you prayed and wish they would happen. And just to see them go through those experiences, you relive it because, you know, when we were going through our first experiences, uh, we, we felt the same way and, and you can relate to it and that bond after they've been through that that bond with your your child out there just continues to grow and 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 strengthen uh, because you can see the the same appreciation you had when you had those experiences in your own child and and what they're going through and um, there's just there's nothing better I, I'll take a, a white-tailed deer hunt with my kid or a turkey hunt with my kid any day over uh, what I believe is the pinnacle of what I've ever done which is the mountain goat hunt in Idaho
2: Mm-hmm. Do you, do you worry with your daughters? Cause I know, you know, starting where you started Northern Minnesota, I know their hunting is a hell of a lot easier and probably more productive. Do you think- worry about that at all? Cause I, I think about that with my daughters a lot, you know, like my girls put in a couple days and killed their first deer, And it took me four full seasons to kill my first year. And I'm like, am I making this too easy for them?
3: You know, I think a lot of things have changed, though Tony. Too, uh, if you look at the management practices and just pure, you know, deer numbers out there, um, you know, I could probably take them back to Northern Minnesota and and have a much better chance. But I do get get what you're saying. Uh, are, are they? I think there are some folks out there that, you know, it's their third year hunting and and they've already killed, you know, three bucks over one forty and one fifties and one sixties, and that's a little bit different. But yeah, I, I think so. I, I, I can relate to what you're saying there.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a little bit of a balancing act because you don't want it so easy that they don't appreciate it, but you Correct. don't want it so hard that they hate it. Right. Well, yep. let, let me ask you this. Cause I, I get, I get hit up for this all the time. Uh, do you feel like, did you feel any differently when you, so you have daughters that you got into hunting? Yes. Did you kind of have to recalibrate yourself a little bit taking girls out versus what you might think you would have to do taking boys out? Because I know, man, I've got buddies who have boys and some of them are just your typical, give me a BB gun, I'm going to kill everything. Give me a pellet gun, I'm going to kill everything. Like there's a, there's a bloodlust in them. And at least my experience with my daughters is like there's not, there's not that same kind of bloodlust, but there is like a real competitive nature to them and there is like a a desire to just see animals and and be out there.
3: Right. Yeah. That I I thought the the biggest difference from when I was growing up and the experiences I had and uh, how I felt, you know, out there hunting. I, I could definitely see with my daughters, I had to be more articulate about what their experience and how they would feel before they even felt it. Um and and I got it from Taking my oldest out, oh Tony, you sat in that food plot with me in Missouri. We had a dandy, dandy buck come out, and I had trained her so well that we would not take a quartering two shot at all, mm-hmm. right? And knowing the 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 rifle she was using at that time, when this buck stepped out, it, it was a no brainer. Yes, it was quartering two. A smidgen, but I could not convince her to pull the trigger to put those crosshairs where they needed to be uh, because it was broadside or nothing, yep. right? Um, and she held me off, Tony. I, I yep. she absolutely held me off. I have it all on video, and it walked out of our life forever. And I, you hear a big sigh from me, like, "Oh my gosh, what just happened?" Uh, but she was so proud of herself, like, nope, Dad, you said not." To do it, so I'm not going to do it. And uh, it what's it's a funny story, Tony. But I ended up killing that deer uh, two and a half years later, Oof. and and so it's still part of the family. Uh, and she doesn't, she loves it as much as I do, you know, because she had that experience with me. But I guess with with the girls, it's it's always been more about the experience and mo- emotion. Uh, that goes into what we're doing. And I feel like they've been so connected, uh, to that experience on a, a different level than, than what I had, because Tony, only growing up. What I want to do is get out there and put an arrow in as m- many things as I could. Yep. Right. Uh, with them, they're, they're more specific to, no, I want to shoot the deer you want me to shoot dad.
2: Yep. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I just had a conversation, uh, with Nicole Belke, uh, who's, you know, she's in the hunting industry and she hunts a lot. And we were talking about a mutual friend of ours who uh, is, you know, she's relatively new to, to hunting, but she's through her job, she's got to hunt quite a bit of different stuff. And she's, she's mostly a rifle hunter and they call her the dainty sniper. Cause she's little, she's petite, but she's yeah. a, she's a, she's a really good shot. And, you know, Nicole was explaining, like watching, watching Aaron shoot. And she's like, You know, she takes so much time to make sure that that shot is perfect. And that's something that I kind of hadn't really faced with my daughters, but I like has been happening where it's like, you know, you and I, let's say we go out and we call in some turkeys and we've got a shotgun. Like, I don't know. It's just pretty much over. Like, you know, the first good shot you get, you're going to dump them and it's over. And you sort of take that for granted. And then you hunt with somebody who's like, I'm not going to screw this shot up. Like I am doing everything in my power to ensure that this is like, this is going to go exactly how it's supposed to go because of how I've been told. And that's like a nice reminder that I think we forget about because we have so much experience. And, you know, you might hunt with people who, you know, don't, don't think about shots that way as much, but when you get out there with somebody who does, and I, I don't know if this is you know more specific to, to new women hunters or not, I really don't know, but when right. you see that it's really interesting because there is like such a focus there to don't screw this up, like make this shot exactly how you're supposed to. And it's pretty neat to see.
3: Yes, it it is. It is a great reminder. Yeah. uh, I can tell you there's been deer in my life that have walked out that I didn't take the first good opportunity that, that I probably should have. But what's always been in the back of my mind is that is what I've, I've, plant implanted in, in, in my daughter's, uh, you know, hunting ethics and, and, and all that stuff is just don't take that shot. Yep. Um, a lot of, a lot of deer have, have gotten away because of that, which is good. You know, you don't want to wound an animal, but I totally get that.
2: Yeah. It's, uh, it, I think it's one of the, it, I think it's neat that that exists. I think it's also a good reminder of, how you know new hunters don't necessarily understand how to think about shots very well like when you yeah. think about you know somebody who's seasoned they're watching a deer move and they're thinking my point of impact just changed by three inches or i need yes. to aim here or i need to bring that pin back a little bit or the crosshairs back or forward and for us it's sort of automatic and to new hunters it's not and so when you when you talk when you preach that broadside or nothing game it's like okay, now, now that's it, but you're not, you're not, they're not learning that that quartering away shot is great. Or, or you can take that quartering two shot in the right situation if you can slip it in there or it's not too severe. And that, that just comes with experience, but you have to start with a baseline somewhere. And often it's just that, that, that broadside shot. And here's where you aim every time. And that's like a jumping off point for them until they have enough experience out there.
3: Right. I think that the biggest thing for me, Tony, was knowing I I believe in Missouri, you could start hunting, forgive me, I could be wrong, but I I believe it was eight years old with, with a parent. And so when you have a, and I waited until my girls were 10, they just weren't ready uh, and weren't efficient enough with, with a rifle yet to get out there during youth season. Um, but I did not want them to have that bad experience.
2: Yeah. Well, just, just curious, what, what rifle did you start them with?
3: Um, they both were shooting a youth model two forty three.
2: Got it. Got it. That's a good caliber.
0: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets
1: and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit
0: SeafoamWorks.com
1: to learn more.
0: Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of stain. If I was going to cook, roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game get fired up for your new weber searwood pellet grill
2: so let's let's talk about your missouri property a little bit how did you because you you mentioned when you when you were in the market and you you liked that area had some experience close to there and you talked to the neighbors you saw how it laid out and you mentioned that access wise you could sort of envision this property turning into something where you knew you'd be able to get into stand spots and, and set things up so you wouldn't educate the deer. how did you know that? Like, how did you look at this? What did this property have that you looked at that said that to you?
3: Um, Honestly, you know, if I, if I were to, to go back a little bit and, and think about this, I believe it was uh, more or less the prevailing winds during the time I'd be hunting. Um, and, and really the, there was a low maintenance access road that kind of bordered the east side of it and knew I could get some south side access as well. So I thought, you know, prevailing winds northwest and I know where these deer are bedded, I can get behind them on their bedding area or I could get in front of them through an easement that was kind of on the on the northeast side of that property as well to get them coming from their bed and going to a destination field or one of my my food plots. Um, it it really dialed in mm-hmm. to where I believe these deer were bedded when I walked that property. Mm-hmm. One of the best things that I found, and I was able to walk this property in April, and I, clearly, I mean, the amount of sheds I found in there, Tony, for there there had to be you know sheds in there maybe three years old. They were not on a little bit, but I could tell that these bucks were hanging in their late season no matter what. Um, and being mostly a timbered track with some destination fields to the west, where these deer were, where I found their sheds were in some pretty good thickets. So I had a really good idea that deer were bedding there late season. Uh, they would probably be there, you know, in, in, in the early season for me too. It was just natural bedding areas. Yep. Um, and taking a step back and looking at a thousand foot view, I I actually then... Uh, contacted a, a local logger in there, and I had them create some access points for me uh, and got some good timber value out of it so that I knew I could sneak in uh, to, to those deer. So there were certain access points I had to create, uh, but I had the luxury of that because, you know, I, I owned the property at that time.
2: Yep. So how how right were you? When you, when you say you're looking at this and, you, you know, you walk it, and you go, okay, prevailing winds are north or west or northwest in the fall. I know I can cut in on this east side or come in from the south. And, you know, you, you lay that plan out. But, you know, this isn't like a perfectly flat piece of ground. You know, like there's right. there's some terrain to it. I mean, how close were you? Like how, how close to getting it really, really right were you? The
3: first year, I felt like I was spot on. Uh, my very first sit on that property, Tony, October 6th. I still remember it because I drove from Sydney, Nebraska, started pretty early in the morning. It's an eight and a half hour trip out there. Pulled in the property about one o'clock in the afternoon. There was a huge cold front coming through. Temperatures were really going to drop. And I was in my stand probably by two and I ended up killing 153 inch deer by 330 in the afternoon. Oh. Um, so and t- I felt like spot on right? he came from exactly where I thought these deer would be bedded and and knew he was gonna start heck he was already making a scrape you know that's the first time I saw him was when he was making a scrape just that that cold that cold weather had gotten him on his feet a lot earlier um and this is by the way this is I didn't have I didn't pull a single trail cam card or nothing I had him out there but i I didn't even know I had this deer on camera until after I'd shot him and went and pulled cards Wow. Now, what changed, though, the very next year is I started to do some habitat improvement and I started adding, I added like a three-acre food plot and I cleared out a logging road and widened it a little bit and planted that into some food. Well, once I did that, my initial assessment uh, would not have worked. I struggled my second year because I had made some habitat changes in there and, and therefore I changed the deer movement.
2: Interesting. So, in, in doing something that would almost universally be viewed as a positive improvement to your hunting land, you you changed the game for yourself.
3: I did. I did. I took what was pretty much a three acre overgrown uh, little pocket inside that woods and, and mowed it down and sprayed it and planted it in clover and chicory. And I thought, now I'm in it, right? All set up on the edge of this thing. It's a beautiful. In the pocket type of uh, food plot, and there you sat on that with me. Yep, uh, it was gorgeous. But once I did that, those deer no longer used the same trails because now they were skirting the food plot, and they were wind checking, uh, you know, the food plot versus walking the regular trails right through the center of that thing.
2: Yep, that is that is something that you you really can't know until you experience it. And, you know, you get your hands on a property that you buy or that you lease or, you know, maybe it's your grandma's farm and you can go in there and, and do some improvement to it. That's not something that we think about a lot where, you know, you, you make that kill plot or you you do that improvement and think, okay, well, the deer always just moved along this ridge. Now they have even more of a reason to do it. But you also start hunting there a lot and you change the cover and you change the habitat and you might actually... You know, push them to do something a little bit different than you expect. Instead of just having this easy setup where they're just drawn to that spot,
3: that's exactly what had happened. I, I learned a lot from my second year of land ownership. Um, you know, being eight eight hours away, I didn't get there a lot, Tony. You know, it was tough to get out there. But when I I was out there, I worked on some weekends and and did what I needed to do. So. By the time hunting season came around, it was a humbling experience to see how my my uh, improvements to that property absolutely changed the dynamic of how those those mature deer specifically were using that that property.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a really a really poignant cautionary tale there, which is when we do something that we think is going to make it easier, it often comes with <laughs> some baggage that we don't. See common. You know like we we flip on the outdoor channel and we see deer get shot in food plots all day long and we're like okay well that's the answer. And man it can be but it can also be something that convinces us, you know kind of like trail camera usage or cell camera usage where it's like this is the answer to my problems. And it's like man this this can be the answer to some of your problems but it can also create new ones.
3: Yes. Absolutely can. Yep. Yeah. The only way I got around that piece Tony uh the next year is I decided I, I, I kind of, during the uh, shed season, I, I could clearly see the established trails around that food plot and how deer were, were moving around me in places where I would never see them, right? Yep. But what I what I did recognize is there were certain spots on that trail where they literally could see the food plot. And if nothing was out there during, you know, the rut, or the, it's not going to pull in a buck. So... I just did plot screen all the way around that and, and thickened it up a little bit and dropped a couple trees to get the deer to move, move around those trails the way I wanted them to do it. And uh, it changed year three was phenomenal for me after I'd figured it out. Yeah.
2: Well, we're, we're bumping into that on my buddy's land down there in Southwestern Wisconsin. We were, we were there in the end of the end of August, uh, hanging some stands. I was actually setting it up for our one week in November shoot. And, you know, we realized. Last year when I hunted there, I saw all these bucks scent check this little knob up on this ridge and it was just like, I don't know. It was like the spot, right? Like I was in a good spot, but that was every deer I saw either started there or ended there. And you know, like what you're talking about with deer being able to look into your plot and go, well, there's nobody there. There's no reason to go there or scent check it really well. They're going to do that instead of just blindly running out into those plots and I kind of had that, an epiphany about this spot. When I got in there, it's just this knob that had all these dough beds on it. It's a little thicker. And the way it sets up is like, if you're a buck and you want to scent check that little bedding area, there you don't have very many good options. You got to get up tight on it because it's a pretty tight little ridge. And the way they're going to skirt around it, you're just like, they kind of have to do this here. If they, they know does are better there and they can't really cheat the system a whole lot. Like they got to get up in there pretty tight. And so when, you know, when I walked in there, I'm like, this is the spot. But then I look at the tree that I flagged in the winter when I was shed hunting out there and I go, that tree is way too crooked to hang a double set in. (laughs) And you know how it is. It falls away. And so in the, in the winter, you look at it and go, this is it just, and you don't really think it through. And then when you carry a bunch of crap in there to hang the stands, you look at it and go, it's not right. And I tried to force it, put everything up, pulled everything down, and I'm looking at it going, you know, I, I didn't think through the wind on this situation very well. And that's why I wanted to ask you how right you got your property in Missouri because this property of my buddies, it's close enough to the Mississippi River where, you know, when you're hunting there in the fall, all you hear is people shooting ducks all day long. And I mean, you, you can look across the river to the Iowa side. So you're right there. And what I didn't realize was if I'm planning on a, you know, a west wind or whatever, that river system, the Mississippi river system is, is affecting those winds so much. And those valleys that run up, you know, kind of parallel to the land or perpendicular to the land, you can't, you can't just look at the forecast and be like, okay, this is what's going to happen. Cause when you get in there, there's so many terrain features that might be affecting it. It's kind of like, you got to learn like on the fly and yeah, you learn yeah, how absolutely. often you get it wrong. And so we were dealing with that on this spot. Cause we're like, this is a spot we want to hunt, but I know if it says a West wind, that wind's going to shoot up this Valley here and it's not going to be exactly what I thought. And so you're always playing that game. And so even though it seems pretty easy to figure out, if you've got private land to work with, it's pretty good. A lot of times it's still kind of a constant work in progress.
3: It is. It is. Matter of fact, uh, you bring up a good point. There's one thing I'm going to do on my Indiana farm this year, and uh, you know I can look at my 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 favorite hunting app and and see which wind direction is, and I can stand out on my front porch and see what the wind direction is. I can look at the flagpole, right? But I really want to start going in and sitting some of these sets and and understanding truly how the wind is flowing in in some of these ravines or side hills that I'm hunting because. Uh, I'm still figuring out my Indiana farm, by the way. It, it takes more than a year. I got lucky, so lucky that first year in Missouri. Um, but the, the ter- what the terrain can do to your the, the wind direction out on my property in Missouri is ridiculous. There are sets where I sat. I actually set them up for a northwest or a westerly wind, and I get down in there, and that wind is going the opposite direction that I need that wind to go and I'm pulling out. So I'll ruin a morning hunt and I've really got to start taking better notes on truly what direction of wind I need to actually hunt in those spots.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, there's a good lesson there too, because I, I find myself a lot of times I'll go, this, this spot is perfect for a South or East wind, or this spot is perfect for a North or West wind. And If I get into something where I'm like, it's got to be straight north or I'm screwed or it's got to be straight out of the west, I find myself either sitting places where I'm like, this is not so great. Like, I'm probably going to get busted or doing what you did, which is like, you get in there and go, I can't do it. I got to get out. And then you might sandbag a morning or you might go to a secondary spot. And it's just never, usually doesn't work out very well that way. And so the more... The more your setups allow for a couple different wind directions, I know this is obvious, but we we don't think about it a lot sometimes when we're setting up. It's really important to give yourself that little margin for error and go, okay, well, now, you know, if that wind isn't perfectly out of the west, if it's cheating pretty hard to the north, I'm I'm still okay. Right. Yep. And some of those setups are just they're they're tough to find, man. Like you said, you can't you don't really know them until you get in there and you get a season you know, where you go, okay, this is actually what happens here.
3: Right. And, and it's tough when you're, you know, somebody may look at 80 acres and say, that's not very big. Right. Um, and, and it, it isn't when you're talking about how many mature deer can that 80 acres hold. And so when you're hunting a specific deer or a specific bedding area and you get in there and the wind is wrong, you have a really good chance of educating that deer to the point where you may not see him until rut or you may not see that deer again now i don't want to give deer all the credit but i also respect them enough to know i've had deer pattern me in my 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 access points right i'll go hunt a set i have consistently gotten a great buck on camera night after night after night the wind's the same and I'll access that set and I'll go sit there and won't see him. And I'll hunt it the next night because the wind's right and I don't see him. I'll pull out and the next night he's in there. It's like, what is going on? And you start to think to yourself, that deer has me patterned. He knows how I'm getting in. And so he knows not to not to come that way when I'm around. Yep. Um Yeah, it's it's been I've been educated more times than not on, on mature bucks.
2: Well, and paying attention to stuff like that is real important. I w- I was having a conversation uh, when we were hanging those stands down in Wisconsin with my buddy because the the spot that I killed my buck on there last year was was this just really cool stand over a pond in this valley. I mean, it was just a it had a lot going for it. It had the right terrain. It had some water, uh, pretty close to that bedding knob, and it just you know you're you're checking a lot of boxes there. And man, it was fun. You could you could get in there. In an awesome way in the morning and access it, and you're almost guaranteed not to blow deer out. And the way it's set up, your wind—if you had the right wind—it was blowing over a quarry where they weren't probably going to come from. And so it was just like fun, you know. I mean, the the morning that I killed my buck, I think I think we saw 14 deer off of that stand. Oh wow, which is fun, right? You're watching deer. You never have a break of more than a half hour or an hour. And then my buddy who owns the place, he's like, "I'm going to go sit that with a rifle." And, you know, I, you can see a lot, you got a lot of different places to shoot. You could cover some serious ground with a high powered in there. And he went in there and the first day sat all day and saw two deer. And I go, okay, well that spot is really good. So what happened? Did it get open enough where they saw him come in? Was it the cumulative effect of the, the Wisconsin gun season going on? Something changed in there. Right. You know, in a, in a two week span where, you know, okay, you're not dealing with the the heat of the rut the same way by the time the Wisconsin opener is. So you can factor that in a little bit, but you can see so much in there to not see hardly any deer all day. Something changed and you got to figure it out. It's not just you, like you said, with the, with the deer patterning you on your, your entrance routes, like, or your access points, it's not random. Like they've, they've got you somehow there. If they're not doing what you expect them to do, there's a really good chance. It's because either somebody else or you tipped your hand to them and they, they know it.
3: That's right. Yep. I th-
2: I think that stuff is, is really important. So how much did it hurt having to sell that uh, or choosing to sell that Missouri property?
3: Oh, it hurts so bad. Cause just the history I had out there, the memories I had made with my girls. Uh, and knowing the quality of animals around there and and having such great neighbors it was very very tough tony but it was the the it was crystal clear to me that in order to spend more time with the girls that i needed a property closer to where i now you know work and live and and so the decision was made to sell that property and and try to find something in in indiana and and this was a much different approach this time around and and actually finding the property that I wanted. Um, How so? Oh, Tony, it's totally different. So I went into Missouri, like I told you, and and I got lucky that first day and and harvested a really nice deer. This time around, I wanted a project. I wanted to challenge myself uh, to the point where I had to really think about everything I've learned. And I've been around so many great hunters out there habitat managers. And I've just been a sponge for years, but now I wanted to try to put what I've learned to work. So I, I found 85 acres in, in, in Indiana here. And the first time I walked the property, Tony, I couldn't find a deer trail. It was like a state park. It was absolutely gorgeous, maples and hickory trees, but no undergrowth whatsoever. It was wide open. Plus, had something I'd never had before, which was a, a 20 acre, uh, it was it was in fescue for hay, but I could envision kind of an agricultural spot there where I could plant corn and beans, et cetera. And I'd never experienced having that much acres that I could, you know, test my farming skills on, on as well. So when I first walked the property, I walked away going, that is going to be too much work. And so I passed on it. And I passed on it for one specific reason. It wasn't because it wasn't a big enough project or it was too big of a project. It's because I was worried about one specific way to access this property to be able to hunt it correctly. Well, after a month went by, it still hadn't sold. A couple folks had looked at it. I decided to take another drive down there and take a a much finer look at it. And I found a logging road that I didn't know existed. It had to be about 20 years old that came out to a county road. And I thought, my goodness, I wonder how this goes through the property. So I took my favorite hunting app and I started walking down this logging road and and dropping pins and and tracing my route. And boy, when I was done, I could not believe what I saw. It gave me all the access I needed to. Just that one more look to find that hidden gem of how to get in and, and potentially uh you know hunt hunt have really good hunting opportunities on this property knowing how then you know my mind started going there was a blank canvas where do i want to hinge cut what does the logging opportunity look like in here i was not interested in the money from a timber harvest i was only interested in how do we harvest this timber to create the best turkey and deer hunting habitat how do i how do i put the logging roads in there to help me enter or uh, gain access to enter and leave my stands undetected? How can I use those same logging roads to influence how deer are coming in and out of the property to the agricultural field that I envision having? Uh, all those things went into play and, and now it's year three, Tony, and, and I cannot wait for folks to see this. I've, I've documented every piece of this journey from how it was to where it is today and I, I think folks would be amazed at, at what you can do in a short period of time.
2: That's that's so cool. Do you, do you find yourself in, in your experience with uh, you know the properties you've owned and you own and the, you know the leasing you've done, do you find yourself like constantly being reminded of how much you have to learn on each of these properties?
3: Every one of them. Yes. I mean, it, it never stops
2: that that's one thing that's a real eye opener. Cause I always think, you know, let's say you, you know, let's say you're a diehard public land hunter and you, you know, you're in Pennsylvania and you're like, this is the national forest I hunt, or this is, these are the couple sections I hunt and you're a scouting fiend. And you you can always get yourself into a position where you're like, I know my deer, I know my deer, I know my deer ground, but you don't. And it, when you, when you have a your own piece of ground to work with, like my, my biggest property is 30 acres. And, you know, this summer I was walking that just because I kind of wanted to. And I'm seeing apple trees I didn't know were in there. And I, I see stuff where I go, how do you miss this on 30 acres that you've owned for, you know, seven or eight years? Okay. And you expand that out and realize like, you just, there's so much that you're gonna miss. Even if you're out there all the time, that, that that's part of what's like so cool about the whole thing.
3: It it is, and I, believe me, Tony, you and I both can relate to the guy in Pennsylvania that's hunting some big woods, right, um, on, on public land. Go, going from you know that doing the recon you need to do to be successful in that situation, to to now owning a piece, piece of property and really having a blank canvas and creating what you want is it was two different. It, it's the evolution of where I wanted to be as a hunter and as a a a habitat manager so that's exactly why i went down the path that i did but um yeah like you said it's amazing i could walk out on that 85 acres tomorrow i've had it for three years and see something brand new or something that's going to open my eyes to why don't i have a set here
2: it's that's so cool
0: ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code
1: MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
0: Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. With a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of stain. If I was going to cook, roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game get fired up for your new weber searwood pellet grill
2: so given given the fact that you have that 85 acres down there uh closer to where you live do you do you still lease any ground
3: i do i actually have a lease in ohio uh why uh that's a great question i i can tell you it's and it's only i've only had it for a year um, I do like the opportunity to get to hunt in other states as well. It kind of extends my season. Uh, I will tell you, my main focus is my Indiana farm, but if I have an opportunity to go over to Ohio and, and try to pattern a buck or or get on a good one, I'm I'm definitely going to do it.
2: Yeah, so you're just you're just giving yourself uh, a few more options there. When you know, with with your insights into leasing working for Base Camp. What are people looking for now? Cause I know like leasing, you know, it's leasing to me is kind of like the, the box blind thing. You know, it, when you think about sort of these things that might've grown out of Texas hunting, I I remember seeing them, you know, when I started hunting, you'd watch a show or, you know, read an article and you're like, I can't believe somebody sits in a little house and shoots a deer, or I can't believe people are paying to hunt land they don't own. And now, you know, it's across the spectrum. Like it's it's so popular and leasing is just crazy popular right now.
3: Yeah, it's it's you know, for the Midwest specifically, you know, it's it's obviously not as a mature market or thing as, as what you'll find down south, like Texas, Alabama, Arkansas, etc., Georgia. Uh, leasing has been around for a very, very long time down south. So still in the Midwest, you still have those folks that ask the question, you know, why would you ever lease a property, just go knock on the door and create a relationship with somebody and and, and hunt the property. Um and, and as a matter of fact, I've I've heard folks take it a step farther and they're not very happy with with the leasing that that we do, right? And and part of it is because folks are, are starting to uh it's it's not it's not cheap, right? Leasing a property is not cheap um specifically in certain states but i will tell you it they're getting over the fact that you would have to pay for access nowadays yep my my biggest rebuttal to folks who have a problem with leasing today is you know we pay for our archery equipment our guns our ammo our camouflage everything everything else we pay for that landowner has invested in a property and is willing to allow access for hunting I just want folks to be grateful for that because a lot of private landowners, they, they don't have to do it. They wish to do it. And, and part of that is they get paid for it. Yep. Right?
2: Well, so, I mean, it, I, I heard Stan Potts say this years ago and it stuck with me. And his, his argument was, you think that you've had free hunting? You know, say you knock on a door and they let you on there. Yeah. And it's like, it was only free to you. Right. Somebody's always paying for it. Somebody's That's always right. been paying the property taxes. Somebody paid, you know, somebody paid to be the title holder of that land somehow, somewhere, some way. And so the idea that, you know, hunting is, was free at one point and it isn't now is, is not, doesn't really hold water.
3: It doesn't hold water. And I, I can tell you, I've, I've had discussions with a lot of our landowners and, and they're so appreciative of, of the the liability coverage that comes with our program you know we we give a, a five million dollar liability uh, coverage to policy for our landowner and our covers our hunters as well and that's really one of the only reasons why they're opening access today is because they feel like they have some sort of comfort level in in knowing they would be covered if an incident did happen and and so these are landowners opening up their property to any hunters whether they're in state out of state whatever uh that they normally wouldn't have access to yeah so i'm very very proud of our leasing program what we can offer our landowners and the comfort uh level that we can bring to them with our services and and then the, the liability coverage that we provide uh to allow other hunters to continue to get out the field because that's the most important thing to me tony is is we continue to get you know folks in the field enjoying this great sport of hunting
2: well, and you, that's something I've never thought of because I've been banging the drum pretty hard on walk-in programs and you know you know private land open to the public access programs throughout different states because I think I think access to ground and any way we can open it up is a huge win for us mm-hmm. and I just I just feel like that's a hill I'm going to die on because I don't see a lot of other solutions to some of the access problems we have going on but I've never really thought about you know leasing services. As as being like a vehicle to or you know a vessel to open up more land to people, but there are probably landowners out there who weren't allowing hunting, and you know pretty sick of writing that check to Uncle Sam every year for their property taxes or you know h- however it plays out. Going, you know, man, if I can if I can be covered against liability and I can have some responsible hunters on here who are paying me a decent amount of money to to hunt the deer. That's sort of a win-win for everybody and it probably is opening up some land that maybe wasn't accessible to somebody before.
3: Oh, uh, it absolutely is and I can I can tell you as well as is some of these landowners did allow hunting, but then it just got out of control. They allowed one person who invited their buddy who invited their buddy and before you know it, you know, there's there's five or six hunters out there on a property that really should only be hunting three, right? And and so some of the feedback we've gotten back is we really appreciate you setting the limit of how many people can hunt our property it, we feel like there's more control over there we know the guys a lot better um and there's so many great relationships that have come out of this leasing program too between the hunters and landowners that i've seen over the years we've got some very very touching and great stories
2: that's that's awesome what, what are some of the mistakes people make let's say you've got somebody out there i, I don't care what state they're in they're like you know what I lost my place. It got developed or I'm sick of bumping into people on public land. I want to, I want to, I can't afford to buy a place, but I want to lease something. What are are some of the mistakes people make when they start looking into leasing?
3: Um, They don't do their due diligence. That's probably one of the biggest things because it's such a competitive uh, thing today. Uh, The demand is so high for a good lease today. I think a lot of folks are, are, are so, eager to get a piece of property that they'll pay in full and just then they go out there and say see that it's not what they thought they were getting Um, any leasing program over there should give you at least a week you know you put a deposit on you go out there look at the property and make sure that's exactly what you want before you put your full money down i think a lot of folks don't understand that once that you pay the leasing company they're a broker that money goes directly to the landowner. It's no longer in the leasing company's pockets, right? So still do your due diligence. Um, have you ever looked at a, uh, you, well, you bought your 30 acres. When when you read the write-up of a property and you would go out there and look at that property that you're interested in buying, and you would see things differently than whoever wrote that property up, correct? Sure. I mean, that happens all the time. We... As as hunters, as outdoorsmen and women, we we see things differently. So don't take the write-up for its word. Uh, Go out there, put boots on the ground, make sure you are getting exactly what you want. And then when that is the case, then make sure you secure it because they're they're not making any more of it. uh, Leasing is very good. Properties are very hard to come by.
2: So you, you would say that you see a lot of people get into the leasing game and sort of, Get a little bit too impulsive with a yeah. lease. Yes. Yeah, I I could see that. Uh, I mean, you see you see that in some of these hot real estate markets where you know people are buying three quarters of a million dollar houses sight unseen just to be in you know, Ketchum Idaho or Bozeman Montana or something, and I I could see that trickling down into the into the competitive space of of leasing, especially in states with probably a high hunter density.
3: Yes. Yep. I and I get it. I get it because of the demand, but man, if I'm going to invest my time and money into going out and hunt property, I'm putting boots on the ground first to make sure it's exactly what I, I would like to have.
2: Yeah. You, you mentioned before I was, I was going to ask you this. You said, you know, you put a deposit down, then you go walk it. Is that, is that typically the, the order of things where if you see a, you know, a listing pop up on your guys' site and go, man, that's, that's the one I want. It's an hour away from home. It's the right size, the right price. You throw a deposit down, then you go look at it. Yep.
3: Yep. You put a $399 deposit down and you got seven days to get out there and look at it. And if you want it, you pay the the balance. Um, if you don't just, you're in the market for another one.
2: Yeah. So that's, that's basically like kind of like a uh, escrow money or like hold money.
3: It's non-refundable Tony. It's, it's that critical. It's the, the demand is so high. Wow. Yes.
2: Yeah. So you gotta, I mean, you, you gotta at least have a pretty good idea. So do you advise people to, you know, check out the listing and then do some e-scouting and, you know, really be honest with themselves before they plunk down that deposit?
3: I would love people to do that. I, you know, if I gave that advice, Tony, I'd tell you they would lose out on the majority of our leases in the Midwest
2: wow Ooh. there
3: there are specific states that we we all have a, a property roll out on and we release our properties monday wednesday and fridays uh to our membership level and if they're not if they don't have a deposit on them in five or ten minutes it's shocking
2: how, like how 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 high is the interest
3: in like uh, people i mean i i could have i bet you have a lease or two right now in ohio uh, that if it came up, there's probably 50 people watching for that lease to come up.
2: Wow. Yep. Wow. So it's just, uh, and you're, you're not seeing any softening of this, uh, given the the current economy.
3: No, no. And it's, uh, to be honest with the last two years, it's, it's been, the demand's even grown higher. I think people just want to get away and have a spot for their own. I've seen properties out there that are, you know i probably wouldn't lease uh just because of how it lays out but folks want to get in the field it's uh, i it, it's refreshing in a way that we haven't lost that are
2: they, are these leases that that you guys are offering they're all annual renewals right
3: yes and first sure right don't have, have renewal
2: got it got it do you do you see people i mean do they get in do you see people hop in leases a lot or do they tend to they tend to stick with one
3: they'll stick with, with the good ones. Our, our renewals are pretty dang high. You know, the, the, same guy who leased it last year is leasing it this year.
2: I bet. And and you guys have a real estate uh, division now as well.
3: Yeah. Basecamp country real estate uh, was formed in 2018 just to, you know, help out with the demand. Uh, we were losing a lot of landowners because they were selling their property and, and, you know, it was a great way to keep these folks in the family. We already knew their property intimately. We had history with their property. And so uh, our, our owner, Steve Meng, said, hey, we should start a real estate division and, and continue to take care of our landowners in that fashion. And it's it's been wonderful, Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure to watch this team grow and uh, the culture we have here is second to none. I'm so proud of these these guys and gals that are working for us.
2: I mean, I I would have to imagine if you take somebody who's serious about deer hunting enough to pay pay pretty good money for a lease and sort of be in that market all the time, there's probably a fair amount of crossover there from people who are considering buying their own land. That is
3: that is correct. To me, it's it's the evolution, you know, of knocking and talking, kind of your D, DYI type of deal to a leasing program where now you're leasing your your, your own property to having enough for a down payment to to own your own piece of land.
2: Yeah. There's, there's sort of a natural progression there. And I I have to imagine, you know, leasing, leasing is interesting to me. I've never done it before. And, you know, you see it sort of as a bridge between the public land knock on doors thing. You know, a lot of people don't want to do that anymore, or it's just not a great option where they live, but they can't afford to outright buy something because, you know, you know how it is when you, when you go shop for recreational land, a lot of banks are like, sorry, we don't, (laughs) we don't want it. You need to have a lot of money to put down. You know, if you don't have a plan to build on it or something, it's a, it's a tough little market to get loans for. And just weird can be a weird thing to navigate. And so that, that middle ground is, is to lease something, but Leasing, you know what I mean? that That's like renting an apartment. Like that money's, it's going to somebody else year after yep. year and not going into, you know, sort of your own theoretical piggy bank. And I, I imagine a lot of people who lease for a few years sort of graduate out of that and go, you know what? I want to put this money into something that I own.
3: Yes. Yep. I can absolutely relate to that.
2: Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to think about in our space because, You know, I I hear people bitch about it a lot and, you know, this property getting leased up or this guy Mm -hmm. owning this and not letting anybody in. And and I get it. I mean, I've lost a lot of places to that to to that kind of thing, but it's not like it's going to go away. And it's it's reality we have to live in and to just be angry with it and instead of maybe look into it and see if you could play in in that space as well somehow To me, it's a little bit short sighted because it's not, I mean, we, we are going to be dealing with this stuff with, with higher demand for ground, you know, that's not going away. And, you know, when you look at urban sprawl and you look at what's just happening out there with a lot of deer habitat, we are just getting pushed on to fewer places and people are going to figure it out. They're going to figure out a way to have, you know, good deer. They can hunt that aren't, you know, constantly being chased by 27 other people.
3: Right. No, I, I, my perception of leasing before I, I worked here was a lot different than what it is today. And um, part of it is because of the the company I work for and, and how they they truly care about the landowner hunters out there. We talk about all the time how proud we are of making sure that we're providing more access to, to hunters out there. That's not lost on on us at all. That's, that's our main goal, right? The second thing is, is I'm... Uh, to be part of a company that actually gives back—if—if if, you know—we we support Farm Rescue and and Catch a Dream and uh, several several other folks out there, Sportsman's Alliance. Um, we're we're right there with your typical guy who wants folks um, to, to succeed out there and and protect you know our heritage and and our right to hunt and all that stuff. So we're not just sitting back here collecting paychecks from, from folks spending their hard-earned money on leases. We've actually got a strategy and we're working hard to gain and get more access for folks. And, and we do give back to our communities tenfold. And I love it. And
2: yeah, that that's awesome, man. Uh Before we wrap this up, I want to ask you a couple questions that you've learned uh, about deer over the years. I want to switch gears here a little bit. Yeah. And, and I want to start this. I want to ask you, What's the dumbest thing you've seen a mature buck do?
3: Gosh, it's a great question. The dumbest thing.
2: Can be, Uh, uh, can be Iowa private land. It can be Northern Minnesota public. Doesn't matter. What's the, what's the one time that sticks in your head where you killed one where you're like, I cannot freaking believe he did that.
3: Well, uh, in Missouri Sullivan County, I, I did shoot at a very, very mature animal, um, at about 12 yards and and I grazed him. I cannot believe I missed that deer, but he ran another 20 yard stop, stood broadside and looked back at me like a mule deer. And that's all I needed for a second shot.
2: What happened on the first one?
3: Uh, The first one, I believe I peaked like it just, to me, I already had that deer mounted, I already (laughs) figured out which way it was going to be turned on the wall all that stuff. I believe that's what happened.
2: Yeah. So you, you get, you, you out drove your headlights a little bit.
3: Oh yes. And it was humbling, but I could not believe that deer ran out there and stood at, you know, 32 yards or so and, and looked literally uh broadside at me in the deer stand. Cause he kind of ran uphill and it was too late.
2: Yep. Well, you know, when you say that we always think, and we talk about mature books, like they would never do something like that, but, I can remember deer that have done that to me too. I mean, I killed a I killed a hundred and fifty-one incher on public land in North Dakota one time that I missed at twenty yards and did the same thing. He just kind of did that little hop to thirty yeah. and then I thumped him. And I can think of other deer. I shot, you know, the, the first buck that I killed with my recurve back when I traditional bow hunted some, same thing. I missed him close. And they did the same thing, just kinda hop back there to twenty yards and gives you that follow up. And I think, you know, the lesson there for anybody listening to this, who doesn't, you know, maybe doesn't have a whole wall full of, you know, 170 inches is listen, plan for that second shot, like, you know, plan to make a good first shot, but understand that, you know, out of, let's say you shoot at 10 deer, one or two of them might, you know, if you miss might give you that follow-up shot. And if you're not ready to get an arrow, you know, like that second arrow knocked up and ready to go you might miss out on that opportunity,
3: right? I I mean, I was ready to hang my bow up in my garage for the rest of the year. I mean, in those split seconds that I'm reaching for another arrow, right? Like, how did you miss that deer? And it just, it was meant to be.
2: Yeah. It just, it just happens. And they, they, sometimes they don't get it, man. If they don't, if they don't see you or hear something, you know, really definitive, there's a lot of times where they're going to spook a little bit and and give you a chance to, you know, while they're trying to figure out what the hell just happened, you can probably, you can find a way to redeem yourself a little bit. You know, it doesn't, it's not going to happen every time, but if you think a big buck will never allow you to do that, even on public land, it's just not true.
3: Right. Yeah. I relate it back to it. I did not have to stop the deer. He was sitting there eating the acorns and I just plain whiffed, you know, so I didn't put him on alert even before I shot
2: isn't it amazing how you can miss a big buck at 12 yards
3: <laughs> i i would love to say that'll be the last one but i've hunted too long to know now that it could happen again i hope it doesn't but yeah.
2: dude it, it is so freaking humbling to miss one that you could probably get with a spear like seven out of ten times
3: right right i'm not too proud to say that i've I've missed like that
2: yeah it, it happens uh what, what's something else you learned, especially when you were you're really into your quest to kill an antlered buck in uh, as many states as possible, and you're you know making the drive to Washington, you're hunting different areas, you're hunting a lot of public land. What what's something you learned that you would say w- that you learned about deer bucks specifically that a lot of people just give them too much credit for?
3: I would I would have to say. That's a really good question, Tony. My gosh,
2: what what's some kind of universal trait or something you saw in deer in your travels where you're like, man, I think people are just overthinking this part about deer.
3: Uh they 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 need cover. They got to eat, right? And and a lot of times, if you can figure out those two things um, and get in between those two things, you, you'll be in good shape. Be in really good shape. Anywhere I've ever gone, I've I've adapted to kind of the way that other folks hunt in those areas but that those two things right there is if you can find the right cover and the right sign within that cover um, and find where they are going to eat you've got a really good opportunity to put yourself in a good situation
2: yeah that that reminding yourself that it's often a game of bed to food food to bed and you know your job is to get in between there is is pretty beneficial Right. Yep. Yeah. I remember, uh, man, we were in like seventh or eighth grade football. And I remember we were getting our, we were getting beat. And I remember the coach saying, cause we had, we had good running backs. You know, I was in a farming community and we had some really tough kids that were running backs. And it, I remember him saying 33 blasts, 44 blasts, 33 blasts, 44 blasts over and over and over and over again. Cause we're going to get three, four, five yards on every one, And we were just going to grind them down and I remember thinking like, man, we have all these plays and all these options and we're going to run those two. Right. And it worked. Yeah, it like you just, it's it just simple. And it when you look at the world of a whitetail and we start to give these bucks so much credit and you know, like uh, he beds here on this wind and he does this on this wind and he's never, he's nocturnal all of October. And you go, hold on, hold on. He's got to eat and he needs a safe place to lay out through the day. And if you can start finding those two spots and how he goes from one to the other, you got a lot of this stuff licked
3: yes yep and getting in and out undetected is just key if you're close right absolutely key I I've got spots on my property Tony on 85 acres that I would love to hunt every day but I will not hunt until the right day
2: yep yep and that's you know that that lesson it's there's a hard one to get across to people who are like hunting public land. And they're like, okay, I got a weekend and this is the spot with all the rubs. And if I don't go there, somebody else is going to, but learning that if you do go there when it's not right, it doesn't matter. It, you're you're going to get it wrong. You're going to screw it up. And that, that patience, you know, people will look at this and go, well, yeah, well, sure. You got 85 acres of your own land and you can be patient because nobody's going to go in there. But that rule applies everywhere. Because if you screw it up, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think about the the hunting competition or what big bucks do. If you're like, I have to do this because, you know, if I don't, like somebody else is going to screw it up or whatever. It doesn't matter because you've already lost the game.
3: Right. Yeah. And I always think about my neighbors are hunting out there too. And uh, if I've got a deer that their core area is is primarily, you know, around my property. Now, deer have a large range, but if I'm getting a deer, you know, more times than not on my 85 acres, the last thing I want to do is bump them out.
2: Yep. Yep. And, and you have the option to, to save them and be patient. And you, I do. I you, do. you learn that though, just, just an experience. I mean, I, I run into that hunting public land all the time where I'm like, I want to go here so bad because I feel that clock ticking and I only have so much time and I know there's a chance to somebody go through there or somebody will go through there. But if you know it's not right, the worst thing you can do is force it.
3: Right. Yep.
2: And we, and we do that a lot. Listen, buddy, we got to wrap this up. Uh, it's always so much fun to catch up with you. So much good information here. Where where can everybody go to find, uh, maybe find their next lease or for maybe find a little property to buy somewhere?
3: You bet they can go to uh, BasecampLeasing.com or BasecampCountry.com for their real estate
2: needs. Awesome. I love it, man. Thank you so much for coming on.
3: You bet, Tony. I appreciate it.
2: That's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for some more whitetail goodness. This has been Wired to Hunt, and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you're looking for more whitetail content, be sure to check out themeateater.com slash wired to see a pile of new articles each week by Mark, myself, and a whole slew of whitetail addicts. Or you can head on over to our Wired Hunt YouTube channel to view the weekly content we drop.
1: Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts
0: store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop. It's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle.